The Week in Doubt. Let's call it episode 292. Hey everyone, this is Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. It's my regret to inform you that I'm back on inhaled steroids again. Let's hope that they don't wreak too much havoc on my voice. And for those of you who are maybe new to the show... Uh, I have a lifelong history of allergies and asthma. Uh, Nothing too, too serious, but uh, I was pretty sick as a kid. And, uh, you know, now, you know, I work construction, I work out, so I'm obviously uh, not in dire straits, physically speaking. But I just had my yearly checkup with the allergist, and they thought my breathing was pretty good when they gave me a peak flow test, but not necessarily optimal. So back on the inhaled steroids. And the reason why I don't like taking them is because I'm a, uh, a singer and obviously a podcaster, and inhaled steroids are notorious for uh, causing dysphonia, the fancy medical term. Basically, um, you know, a, ch- a change in quality in one's ability to uh, speak or whatnot. I think not even the experts are 100% certain why inhaled steroids tend to mess with your voice. But I think the prevailing uh, theory is that the powder comes in contact with your vocal cords. And uh, I guess corticosteroids, you know, cortisone-based steroids, are known to affect um, muscle strength or something like that. So the thinking is the powder gets onto your vocal cords and weakens them or weakens, you know, the, the muscles involved in speech or whatever. Um, very frustrating if you're someone who suffers from asthma or some other kind of breathing-related illness, but also values your speaking voice or your singing voice. Uh, yeah, very frustrating. I'm not the only, uh, one, um, in that boat, though, and I'm on a relatively small dose, so I'll just keep an eye on it and, uh, see what develops. Anyway, I guess I'll start with some listener, or rather some viewer feedback, This is kind of a last-minute thing. I found this reply in my inbox. Uh, I think it was mm, earlier today, or it might have been yesterday. I forget. And it's in response to a video I published entitled The Conversion of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, And I forget which which episode of the audio podcast that would have been. But I remember a friend and listener, Russ Ray, turned me on to the uh, story I forget the author's name, but there was some Christian apologist, and uh, supposedly he was somewhat friendly with Christopher Hitchens, and he wrote a book in which he claimed that Christopher Hitchens, near the end, had contemplated converting to Christianity. And I wasn't the only one to point out with some indignation that um, Christopher Hitchens was no longer around to defend himself or to challenge said claim. The author went on to Justin Briley's uh, somewhat popular uh, podcast uh, entitled Unbelievable and uh, had a discussion about the book. And uh, Unbelievable, Justin Briley, or Briley, I forget how to pronounce his name, uh, is admittedly a Christian. So I think the show does slant 
in that direction as far as bias is concerned. But they still have some interesting conversations or debates on the show. Uh, but that particular episode uh, got under my skin and a lot of other people's skin, too. For those of us who are um, admirers of the late Christopher Hitchens, it was kind of tough listening to this Christian apologist going on about how Christopher Hitchens supposedly, once again, according to the author, had been considering a kind of deathbed conversion. And I don't want to get bogged down and going over all the points I made in that episode again. Uh, I really, I'm just bringing this up because I wanted to tackle the bit of feedback I'm about to read. But if you are interested in my take, what I thought of the author and his claims and his appearance on Unbelievable, you can go to Podbean and uh, look for the Weekend Out podcast and then look for uh, the conversion of Christopher Hitchens. Um, or you can go to YouTube and look for the Weekend Out channel and look for um, a, a video specifically entitled The Conversion of Christopher Hitchens, question mark, exclamation point. I would also advise you to look for the episode on iTunes, but it's a, I think it's a fairly old episode. And the iTunes feed only goes so far back for some reason. I tried to adjust that. Uh, in my Podbean settings before, and temporarily it worked so that the feed went all the way back to the inaugural episode, but then over time, uh, it kind of set itself back again. Who knows? But anyway, here's that uh, bit of feedback, and it looks like it's from someone named Christoph Sadao, or Sadao, uh, I apologize if I'm butchering your name, uh, S-E-D-A-O, uh, and they say, Sincere question. Have you ceased all seeking? Mankind has infused fear-mongering into many of its endeavors. Have you rationalized away sincere seeking on account of prefabricated Catholic school and fear-mongering humans? Okay, so on the one hand, uh, I want to kind of, you know, offer them some praise and say that they sound fairly, you know, intelligent or well-spoken. But on the other hand, I get the feeling that maybe English isn't their first language. And I'm trying to suss out what they're trying to say with this message. So my guess is what they're referring or alluding to when they mention fear-mongering is how religion can often employ threats of hell or eternal perdition or whatever. Um, and so my feeling is he's probably trying to say don't let stodgy old Catholicism or whatever the sect may be uh, scare you away from the uh, spiritual path with its uh, fear-mongering or whatever. And I'm going to try not to be too hard on the person because they probably don't mean any harm. But for some reason, this kind of response does kind of irk me. I think it's kind of presumptuous or arrogant for another person to assume that I haven't done my fair share of seeking. And I notice this kind of attitude a lot. I think there's people who move away from organized religion, but, you know, th then they start to explore 
this big ocean of airy-fairy ideas. Maybe like myself when I was younger, they might delve deep into Eastern religion or mysticism. Maybe they might take an interest in some kind of new agey paranormal kind of things like uh, psychic mediums, uh, tarot cards, um, angels, crystals, homeopathy. Well, homeopathy I'd put more in the category of quack science than uh, I would the supernatural, but you get my drift. Maybe they're binging on Deepak Chopra or, uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle or whatever, you know. Um... And I think you can get, you know, you can kind of, uh, you can get kind of drunk on this stuff or, you know, and I can remember when I still merely considered myself agnostic, when my reason had eroded away my faith in Christianity or my ability to literally believe in Christian doctrine there was a part of me that still wasn't ready to give up on the quote-unquote spiritual. And I did delve heavily into Eastern religion, philosophy, mysticism, or whatever. Um, and I don't regret it. I'm, I still think I learned a lot that I still, you know, I learned a lot of useful teachings that I still carry around with me. I don't literally believe in bodhisattvas or Buddha lands or whatever, but a lot of what Buddhism has to teach about equanimity, about a kind of healthy detachment, about having or cultivating compassion for other living beings, that's all stuff that I still hold dear and carry with me. Um, but I think just like my reason eroded away my literal belief in Christian teaching, it also eroded away my superstitious tendency to suspend my disbelief. I don't care if it's remote viewing, uh, stigmata, uh, ESP, telepathy, channeling, tarot, whatever it is, whatever kind of paranormal hogwash or whatever, you know, I'm kind of losing my patience now, that you can think of. You know, I've looked into it, and when I was younger, I wanted to believe, you know, I wanted to believe more than anything. When I would watch documentaries on the supernatural, the paranormal, I was hoping that they would prove that these phenomena actually existed by the end of the show, and they never did. They never do. Um... I don't see any definitive empirical evidence for uh, the existence of psychic phenomena, for the existence of ghosts or spirits. Really wanted to believe in all that stuff when I was younger, but to me, the evidence just ain't there. If it is there, bring it on, man. Bring it on. Please do. Um, and you know, I consider myself, once again... You're all sick of hearing it. I consider myself an agnostic atheist. I don't claim to know whether there is or isn't a higher power, but I do strongly doubt the existence of a higher power, of an afterlife. I do certainly believe that, and this person who wrote this response seems like they might agree with me on this, that religions are, it's painfully obvious that religions are man-made. And like I was saying, to reiterate, I think a lot of people, they do see that, 
Religions obviously are man-made. And you can see the inconsistencies, the contradictions. You can see how um, monotheistic religions grow out of polytheistic pagan traditions, etc. But often, and understandably so, I, I can sympathize. Just because people are willing to concede that religion is organized religions are man-made, they still want to believe that there's something more out there. And I don't blame them, you know, but you're going to have to bring some evidence. You're going to have to deliver the goods if you want me to believe any of the supposed psychic or paranormal phenomena out there. And I've often tackled on the show the subject of what I like to refer to as atheism and the transcendent, you know, and that. I think like Sam Harris, you know, I do believe that there really are these kind of quote-unquote transcendent, for lack of a better word, experiences that um, we all can have, uh, or most of us, unless somehow, you know, your um, neurological equipment is deficient somehow, you know. But I think all of us have experienced things like... Uh, you know, feeling really moved by art or music, uh, feeling a sense of oneness, like we're plugged into something bigger than ourselves, feeling the kind of ego self uh, melt away, feeling awe in the face of the beauty of nature, uh, maybe even, you know, taking uh, illicit drugs, uh, you know, hallucinogens like psilocybin mushrooms or, you know, lysergic acid, whatever it is. And, uh, really feeling that our consciousness has become powerfully altered and having experiences that we may very well be tempted to label or deem religious or spiritual. Um, and I'm really fascinated by those experiences. I'm fascinated by altering consciousness. And uh, it's a, a topic I have a lot of reverence for. And I think even, um, you know, other things, like it might sound crude, but but I'm serious. Things like the, uh, the powerful altered state one enters into when you're experiencing a particularly powerful orgasm. Or, you know, something like the runner's high, being in the zone. Or uh, on a more, a more mild example, maybe even something small like uh, caffeine or... Um, or maybe even the altered consciousness we can experience from imbibing alcohol or whatever, you know? So I do think there really are these rich, profound states of consciousness that we all experience. Those are quite real and to me quite valuable and life would be a lot emptier without them. The question is, are these just neurological you know, neurochemical states, or are these really divine states? Um, as some might argue, is the meat brain acting as a kind of re receiver or receptor and allowing us to commune with the divine in different ways via these, these chemicals or, you know, these agents or whatever? Um, I can't say with 100% certainty that that's not the case, but at the end of the day, even though I do believe in taking a kind of romantic or poetic approach to life and kind of trying to really 
enjoy life experientially um, and not kind of overly deconstructing everything where you strip the magic away from it. Um, I think we should be able to get drunk or revel in this kind of awe at exist at being alive at existence itself that's something we don't want to lose and yet we don't have to believe in a bunch of hokum in order to enjoy or get lost in that experience i love that experience and try to engage in it to some degree every day of my life but at the same time i try to also retain a sober enough worldview at the end of the day or a rational enough worldview that I can say that, yeah, there's a good chance that, you know, consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. And these really rich, powerful moving states are also products of the meat brain. Once again, don't know that with 100% certainty. One of my favorite books is all those Huxley's The Doors of Perception, you know, um, but I do lean towards the scientific materialist view of things when we really get down to brass tacks at the end of the day. And so I kind of resent when people try to look down their nose at me and kind of, you know, advise me not to give up seeking or presume to know that I haven't done enough seeking. Uh, I think in some ways I'm kind of the quintessential seeker. But at the same time, there's also a part of me that says, yeah, I, I, I take the seeking so seriously that I want to know the actual truth. I'm not jo- just going to rest on my laurels when I find an ideology or a belief that makes me feel good. I want to actually know. So I, I, in a sense, I am the ultimate seeker and that's that probably sounds hugely self-congratulatory or um or pretentious or whatever but you know i'm working without a script here and for lack of a i guess in a way i'm kind of defending myself i feel like i'm being accused of not being enough of a seeker and i i'm saying hey wait a minute i am so dedicated to the seeking that I'm not going to stop in the land of the lotus eaters, you know, where it's nice and dreamy. I'm going to keep looking for the actual truth. Did I really refer to myself as the ultimate seeker? Oh, Jesus. Uh, I I was tempted to end this episode with that characteristically long-winded response to that bit of uh, listener feedback. But there was a... uh, news article that I came across at kind of the last minute that really grabbed my attention. And it has to do with the Shroud of Turin, or Shroud of Turin, tomato-tomato, I guess. Um, Being predominantly Italian, I feel like I should know the pronunciation. But hey, you know, I was raised here in America, and about the closest I get to Italian culture is eating pizza like the rest of you guys. (laughs) Um... And I guess it's kind of funny on the heels of uh, that last segment that we'd be talking about something like the Shroud of Turin because I was talking about um, losing my kind of superstitious tendency to suspend my disbelief and how if you want me to believe in something fantastic, some kind of 
supernatural or paranormal phenomenon, you're going to have to, you know, cough up some evidence. And if you're kind of new to the show, uh, longtime listeners will know that I have this uh, kind of uh, long-standing fascination with the Shroud of Turin. I was raised uh, in a devout Catholic home, um, and I kind of hesitated there because, you know, at the beginning we, we went to church every Sunday, then eventually, you know, we went on the holidays, then eventually not at all, you know. But uh, I still had a fairly uh, devout Catholic upbringing. And um, I can remember the Shroud of Turin or Turin being mentioned in my house uh, when I was growing up as a kid. And I remember uh, right across from my bedroom, my two older brothers uh, shared a room. And as a little kid, I I would sometimes get kind of creeped out by their room because they would have like Black Sabbath uh, paraphernalia, all sorts of like creepy stuff in there. Uh, Well, what seemed even as a young kid, I liked heavy metal and kind of liked dark things, you know, but at the same time, um, I was also kind of a sensitive kid and I got kind of spooked or scared easily. And uh, there was something else in their room that used to spook me. And one of my older brothers was, and as far as I know, still is, uh, devoutly religious. And he used to keep a picture of the Shroud of Turin, or Turin, tucked into, you know, the edge of his mirror. And I believe it was a picture of the Shroud in its kind of alternate state that uh, you can see when uh, examining a, a negative of a photograph of the Shroud. And just to give you uh, a really brief synopsis, I imagine a lot of you listening are already somewhat familiar with uh, with what the Shroud is or what it's purported to be. The Shroud of Turin is purported by believers to be the, uh, the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the Shroud, you can see the faint image of of what looks like a man who kind of, uh, you know, fits the the description or is in keeping with the, uh, you know, the passion story of Christ. Uh, you can see someone who's covered in lacerations, who appears to have uh, crucifixion wounds, appears to have... Um, you know, a series of lacerations or wounds where the uh, crown of thorns would be. And the shroud is rectangular. When it's fully laid out, you can see two images. An image of the the front of the figure and an image of the back of the figure. And the two images are almost touching at the head. And uh, the shroud Turin had been kicking around for centuries. Um... But it wasn't until the 19th century that an Italian photographer by the name of, uh, I think it's Secundo Pia. Um, I'll check that real quick, just in case. It's either Secundo or Secundo Pia. Yeah, Secundo. Secundo Pia was an Italian lawyer and amateur photographer. Yeah, and it was in the late 19th century where this all took place. So, uh, Secundo took a picture of the Shroud of Turin, 
And he realized when he was developing the image that when you looked at a negative of the shroud, that suddenly this kind of wealth of detail became visible. The image went from being faint to being, um, you know, very fleshed out and detailed. Uh, And you could very clearly see the image of a bearded man, uh, hands folded in front of him, uh, appearing to have crucifixion wounds, uh, appearing to be covered in all sorts of wounds, some of which some have posited are um, in keeping with wounds that you would see inflicted by a kind of Roman whip known as a flagrum that has these little kind of dumbbell pieces, these metal pieces fastened to the ends of these leather thongs or tongues, and that will have been used to uh, flog uh, Jesus, supposedly. And the striking amount of detail continues, you know, when you look at the back of the figure, when you look at the uh, the fully unfolded shroud, and uh, you can, it looks like someone with a, a back that is just covered in wounds and lacerations, etc., and supposedly the shroud also has, uh, you know, blood stains on it. And scientists have been going back and forth for decades. Um, you know, there's skeptics and more secular scientists out there who pretty much think that it's nothing more than a medieval forgery. Uh, you know, it's a hoax or whatever. And then there's a lot of, well, a good deal of um, scientists who are either openly religious or who maybe aren't necessarily religious, but they think that there's compelling evidence for not just writing the shroud off as a hoax, that there still might be something there, you know? And um, I think one of the major proponents for the supposed validity of the shroud is actually a, a Jewish uh, researcher, photographer named Barry Schwartz, that who is a member of the so-called Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STIRP. And I actually had some correspondence with, uh, with Barry Schwartz back in the day, probably well over a decade ago. Um, and the Shroud is one of those things. When I was probably like... A young, you know, a kid, uh, maybe middle school, teenage years, I don't know, whatever. Um, You know, this is one of those things where I'd be watching a documentary about the Shroud, and part of me would really be rooting, like, please prove that this thing is true by the end of the special, you know what I mean? Um, and, And like, with most kind of you know, spooky mysteries or whatever, no, they, they never really definitively prove that's the real deal, you know? And so I can remember when, you know, like I was in my teens or whatever, actually finding myself bothered by skeptics who would try to write it off as just, you know, a forgery or a hoax or whatever. And and I would try to, you know, exercise my brain by uh, trying to come up with a way in which the shroud could still be valid in spite of, you know, the skeptics poo-pooing it or whatever. Um and I think to some degree, even after I pretty much closed the door on being a believing Christian, you know, um, into my 20s, you know, I probably considered myself more of a seeker or an agnostic. I think there was still part of me that was uh, 
rooting for the shroud to be valid. Um, and I was probably somewhere in my 20s when I first started corresponding with uh, Barry Schwartz, I think. So the Shroud of Turin was eventually carbon dated, and the results placed it somewhere in the Middle Ages. Uh, I think roughly around the same time that the Shroud first kind of surfaces in the historical record. Some people try to say that you can trace the roots of the Shroud further back into history, even to, um, you know, early history with the, uh, I think, the King of Edessa and uh, all this. And um, there's also something known as the Mandillion, which I think means face cloth or towel or little towel, something like that. And um, it was the image of this kind of, it was supposed to be this kind of miraculous face of Christ uh, where you where the face would be revealed through a kind of circular or oval cutout. Um, and some tried to posit that the Mandillion was actually the Shroud of Turin folded up. And if you work with this premise, you can try to get the Shroud of Turin, uh, its origins way back closer to the actual time of Christ, you know, instead of first coming on the scene uh, during the Middle Ages or whatever. So I want to Google the Mandillion real quick, because I think I screwed up something about the Mandillion last time I did a show on the Shroud. Yeah, okay, so this is from Wikipedia. According to Christian tradition, the image of Edessa was a holy relic consisting of a square or rectangle of cloth upon which a miraculous image of the face of Jesus had been imprinted. Yeah, it speaks of King uh, Abgar of Edessa. By this account, King Abgar of Edessa wrote to Jesus, asking him to come cure him of an illness. Abgar received the reply letter from Jesus, declining the invitation, but promising a future visit by one of his disciples. Instead, one of the 70 disciples, Thaddeus of Edessa, is said to have come to Edessa bearing the words of Jesus, by the virtues of which the king was miraculously healed. This tradition was first recorded in the early 4th century by Eusebius of Caesarea who said that he had transcribed and translated the actual letter in the Syriac chancery documents of the king of Edessa, but who makes no mention of an image. The report of an image which accrued to the legendarium of Abgar first appears in the Syriac work The Doctrine of Adai. According to it, the messenger, here called Ananias, was also a painter, and he painted the portrait which was brought back to Edessa and conserved in the royal palace. The first record of the existence of a physical image in the ancient city of Edessa was by Evagrius Scholasticus, writing about 593, who reports a portrait of Christ of divine origin, which affected the miraculous aid in the defense of Edessa against the Persians in 544. Yeah, so here it says, uh, Author Ian Wilson has argued that the object venerated as the Mandillion from the 6th to the 13th centuries was in fact the Shroud of Turin, folded in four and enclosed in an oblong frame so that only the face was visible. So it seems for the most part I knew what I was talking about. Um, yay me. But it seems here that according to even the early accounts, it was thought of as a painting, not necessarily a uh, miraculous image imprinted on the actual burial shroud. I don't know. Yeah, and so once again, the shroud was carbon dated, placed somewhere in the uh, Middle Ages. Um, I think the consensus was, okay, medieval forgery, we can pretty much 
you know, close the book on this one. But then other researchers, I think even, you know, some involved with the Shroud-Turin Research Project, would argue that the carbon dating results could have been skewed, uh, might have something to do with contaminants on the shroud, or, you know, maybe uh, the, the part of the shroud that had been carbon dated was one of the pieces that had been replaced after the shroud had been damaged in a fire. So, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny. This story actually comes from live science. I know that not everyone who visits the Weekend Out Facebook page is necessarily an atheist or a hard atheist. So I like to kind of mix up what kind of content I um, I post there. I do share a lot of uh, atheist articles, uh, etc., memes, whatever, on the Weekend Out Facebook page. But sometimes I like to, you know, give people a break from the hard atheist stuff and, you know, post something having to do with science that maybe everyone could enjoy. So I went to live science, and wouldn't you know it, the first um, story that pops out at me has to do with the Shroud of Turin. And so this is dated July 18th, so just two days ago, and it's entitled Shroud of Turin is a Fake Bloodstain Suggest. And it looks like it's by Charles Q. Choi, I think. The Shroud of Turin is said by some to be the burial cloth of Jesus and by others a medieval forgery. Now a new study using modern forensic techniques suggests the bloodstains on the shroud are completely unrealistic, supporting arguments that it is a fake. The Shroud of Turin is an ancient linen cloth about 15 feet long by 4 feet wide that bears the image of what appears to be a crucified man's body on display at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, Italy. It is one of many shrouds claimed over the centuries to be the one true burial cloth of Jesus. But in 1988, scientists carbon dated the shroud's origins to between A.D. 1260 and 1390, supporting claims that it is merely a hoax, as Jesus' life is thought to have come to an end in A.D. 33. Still, whether or not the shroud is a fake is still a hotly debated question. To help shed light on this controversy, researchers strove to use modern forensic techniques on the shroud. They focused on the blood stains from the supposed crucifixion wounds on the linen, aiming to reconstruct the most likely position of the arms and body within the shroud. And bringing up the position of the arms and body, that rem for some reason I just thought Voltron, and I'll form the head. But, uh, <laughs> don't ask. I just started drinking. Um, let's see. Get serious. My personal kind of biggest issue with the Shroud is um, believers tend to suggest that the imprint on the Shroud was made by this divine release of energy upon the resurrection of Christ, you know? Um, but if this kind of burst of energy left an imprint on the Shroud of the body, why would it just be the front and the back of the body. You know, why wouldn't it be more of a, you know, why wouldn't the image wrap around the sides as well? So that, let's say you unfolded the shroud, you should get a, a very distorted image. You know, the, the arms should look wider than they should, the head should look wider than it should, because you're seeing the sides of the image folded outwards. You know, drawing just the front 
in the back of the image with these kind of perfect proportions and leaving out what would be the side view, you know, that seems like something an artist would do, like a stylistic choice. And I know I'm not the first to consider that issue with the Shroud. I remember seeing a documentary at some point that actually brought up that same issue and showed kind of a rendering of what the image would look like if it was more realistic. Like if the imprint had been, you know, like a 360 imprint, as if the radiating energy that left the imprint on the shroud uh, was radiating out in all directions, not just up and down. So not just like a broken record, but you should also have the sides of the body, you know, the sides of the arms, the legs, the sides of the head, so that when you unfold the shroud, it should look very weird. You know, the image should look kind of unsettlingly wide and uh, kind of oddly proportioned because you're seeing the sides of the image extended or folded outwards. I think there's a lot of other valid reasons to question the authenticity of the Shroud as well, but that, that's a big one that always kind of stuck with me. The scientists applied blood, both human and synthetic, onto a live volunteer to see how blood would run in rivulets down his skin as he lay with his arms and body in various positions. Furthermore, Jesus was supposedly stabbed in the side with the Holy Spear as he hung on the cross. <clears throat> and that just made me think of Odin. <laughs> the Norse god Odin supposedly hung suspended from the world tree, uh, self-impaled by a spare. Uh, whole dying and rising god thing. Um, don't worry, I'm not a zeitgeister, but I I've always been kind of moved or fascinated by the uh, dying and rising god motif. And notice how, you know, it, it occurs in different uh, pantheons and uh, different traditions. As such, to mimic a spear wound, the researchers stuck a sponge on a wooden plank, soaked the sponge with synthetic blood, and jabbed this fake spear into the side of a mannequin to see how the, for a minute I thought they were going to say to the side of the volunteer, to see how the blood ran down the body. They finally compared all these bloodstain patterns with one seen on the shroud. They found that if you examined all the bloodstains on the shroud together, you realize these cannot be real bloodstains from a person who was crucified and then put into a grave, but actually handmade by the artist that created the shroud. Study lead author Matteo Barini, a forensic anthropologist at Liverpool, John Moore's University in England, told Live Science. For instance, two short rivulets of blood on the back of the left hand of the shroud are only consistent with a person standing with their arms held at a 45-degree angle. In contrast, the forearm bloodstains found on the shroud match a person standing with their arms held nearly vertically. A person couldn't be in these two positions at once. The scientists did find that the blood stains on the front of the chest did match those from a spear wound. However, the stains on the lower back, which supposedly came from the spear wound while the body was positioned on its back, were completely unrealistic, they said. If you look at the blood stains as a whole, just as you would when working at a crime scene, you realize they contradict each other, Barini said. That points to the artificial origin of these stains. All in all, this research shows, and there's a lot of quotes I just kind of bulldoze through this here, how we can apply forensic techniques not only to new forensic cases, but also to ancient mysteries, Barini said. The scientists detailed their findings online July 10th in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. 
Yeah, and as someone who's been following the Shroud uh, for a very long time, um, it doesn't surprise me that someone came up with yet another way in which, uh, you know, the authenticity of the Shroud can be kind of ruled out or whatever. Um, it'd be interesting to see how people like Barry Schwartz are kind of proponents of the Shroud, uh, what they would have to say in response to this. And... Uh, Friend and listener Crocoduck actually tweeted at me in response to uh, sharing the link to this article on Twitter. He says, Jesus is supposed to have been dead for some time before being covered with the shroud. So how many bloodstains would his shroud even have? Dead people don't bleed and blood dries quickly. So by the time the cloth first touches him, any blood should be dry, clotted, and scabby. Scabby blood clots. Thanks for the imagery, my friend. Uh, just kidding. Um, and I don't know why, but for some, one of my favorite biblical scholars is Dominic Crossan. And I first discovered uh, Crossan while watching that Frontline series years and years ago that I always mention on the show, uh, From Jesus to Christ, the First Christians. But I, I believe... Uh, Crossan caused quite the fuss when he conjectured that Jesus was most likely, I think, didn't he say uh, Jesus was most likely eaten by wild dogs or something like that? Usually the Romans would have left the body up on the cross uh, to decompose, you know, left open to the elements and, uh, you know, the jaws of uh, carrion beasts or whatever, you know. But I think that's a good point by, uh, by Crocoduck. And uh, with, with that, I'll probably uh, call this episode a wrap. Thanks for listening, guys. We finally made it through that three-part, well, technically four-part um, episode where I responded to some uh, non-sequitur show clips. And now we're kind of back to uh, the status quo, whatever that is. So, yeah, once again, thanks for listening. You guys know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash theweekendout and uh, supporting what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month and uh, quing anytime you like. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.